Welcome to the second episode of the Katie and Me podcast. I'm Katie Rogers. I'm the host of Katie on the Farm and a produce farmer who loves communication. And this is Chris Hutchinson. Chris, tell the people about yourself. Hi, Katie. I'm Chris Hutchinson. I don't have nearly the fun intro that you do because I'm not the host of a famous TV show. But I am an entrepreneur with, what a stretch. <laughs> with 20 years of experience in sales, marketing, and operations. Uh, I'm the owner of the CoLab Group, which is a niche consulting company. And a little bit more fun, I'm also the owner of The Pint Cycle, which is a 16-person pedal pub. A lot more fun. Yeah, a lot more fun. And a lot more fun stories, uh, which you may get into on the uh on the extra show. Um, and that Pine Cycle is based in Fishers, Indiana. Yes. So um, Chris and I work together on occasion and we get together and we learn all kinds of crazy stuff from each other. And we have these great conversations and we have other people in our conversations that teach us things. And frequently you hear, you know what, I wish everybody knew about my job or about what I'm passionate about. And so we thought, all right, well, let's tell everybody. And we're going to bring you into those conversations with us. And uh, we'll stick to a schedule, and we would like some feedback from you at the end. Yeah, and um, fortunately, I'm very OCD, so I have a timer here, and I'll make sure that we <laughs> only spend so much time per topic, um, which I need for myself more than anything, because I will ramble. But um, yeah, and if you are interested in participating in the show, uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach us through Twitter at Katie and Me Pod, and that's K-A-T-Y-A-N-D-M-E-P-O-D. Or you can email the show at chrisandkatieandme.com or katie at katieandme.com. And we'd love to hear any feedback that you have. And we will also be reaching out for future episodes to uh, hear ideas or things that you wish people knew about something that's important to you. So we will definitely be looking forward to your input in the show as well. All right, Chris, today we're going to talk about the concept of framing. Okay. We're going to talk about flow. And when I say we, I mean you. I will talk about the flow. <laughs> you talk about framing. Yes. And then we are going to find out what nurses wish we all knew. Very, we got some very um, interesting and eye opening feedback on that. Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking glad forward we're to discussing this. that. All right, great. I'm going to jump right in here talking about framing, this really ubiquitous thing that we all do to get through life. And let me give you some examples here, right, yeah, Chris? Yeah, please. Okay, so let's say that you and your wife have a couple friends that break up, mm -hmm. okay? And the view of the breakup between your wife and her friend and you and the husband is very different. We actually went through that exact example. Okay, I don't know if you knew perfect. that or not, but we did. I did we, not, we went I did that not exact know that. Example, so this right? is good. Yeah, so this is really relatable I mean, stuff here. Good, right? Quotation marks, but right? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, let's say this is not your case, I hope, but let's say he stepped out. And from the guy's point of view, he'd spent 20 years in a horrible, loveless marriage with a woman that was horrible and just dreadful and of course he finally broke down and oh my gosh I think he found love right and from the woman's point of view he never did anything and it was just awful and how could he have betrayed someone who'd been so loyal and all this kind of stuff and right. really it's the exact same situation the same people who behaved in the same way but you've got different frames mm -hmm. right in my life I have uh, one of my children 
is really afraid of the dark. And so I'm constantly trying to reframe the scenario, the, the dark for him. And so I'll even lay down with him and I'll say, oh, man, I feel so safe when I'm in this nice, dark, cozy place. It's right. so calming to me, you know, in this mm-hmm. place that gives him anxiety. I try and tell him for me as a calming space. And now he hasn't really adopted as, as his own frame, but he has been able to kind of see like, oh, there's other frames mm-hmm. for this, even though he doesn't articulate it like that. Uh, headlines do this for us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Um, all the time. In fact, I had saved a bunch of examples. I'll spare you. But when you go through different news outlets right. on like your Google ticker or mm-hmm. whatever it is, you'll see the exact same statement, not just speech, but statement described in different ways based on the outlet. Do you think uh, that happens a lot today? Oh, man. <laughs> man, there is a reason we are talking about this. Yeah, um, exactly. So uh, George Lakoff is really well known for talking about framing. And he says that frames rely on existing metaphors and beliefs. They rely, and the scheme is in our heads, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very necessary thing. So the frame, if you think of a photograph or a story or a painting in a museum, and if you put a heavy 10 inch thick ornate gilded frame around it, and you take the exact same thing and next to it, you put a very modern, simple, metal, clean frame around mm-hmm. it. It's gonna have a very different aesthetic. right? Now imagine that inside that one ornate frame and inside that one clean frame, there's like tinted plastic. That changes the picture further. Sure. Right? Now take a circle, uh, like a magnifying glass, and stick it in that plastic somewhere, but in different places in the two frames. And you have the exact same thing that is now being seen very differently. differently. Different things are magnified. Different things stand out. And the entire tone is different. So there's framing. Uh, Baldwin Van Gorp says that, for instance, human migration has about 16 different frames that you could use to look at it. Okay. Right? So we're talking about issues like uh, immigration. Mm-hmm. All of these things. There's all these different frames. And we all use multiple frames based on our experiences and the metaphors that we have ingrained deeply in our minds. Now, I used the framing of an issue and have many times to help me change behavior. So when people change frequently, that's a change in frames. For instance, Your I own was behaviors a, or the behavior of others or both? Both. Okay. Um, I'm going to tell you though, when I quit smoking, uh-huh. finally for the last time, the big thing I did was that I told myself I'm a non-smoker. I reframed my identity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, out loud, told myself that, well, I'm a non-smoker. I even got in situations where people would be smoking around me and, you know, maybe have a glass of wine and I'm relaxed. And I go, oh, kind of would like to right. do that. And I go, well, but, but I'm, I'm a, a non-smoker. non-smoker. Right. And so um, I've used it to manipulate how I view things quite intentionally. A lot of times, though, it's unintentional. We don't realize it. And that's what I think talking about it helps us do is become cognizant. You know, we struggle with our internal frames. Mm -hmm. We struggle with how we look at ourselves and our identity framing. So the same woman who walks into a boardroom with all the confidence in the world could at another point minutes later have herself framed as someone who had experienced abuse and felt very small and vulnerable, right? And so we all do that. We switch between our frames based on the situation. And one of the things that people who are highly effective can do, in my opinion, is intentionally switch those frames. So when I need to be in front of the board and I'm put on my suit and I am in that role and my frame is as someone in authority, as opposed to letting my my other frames come and become dominant in that gotcha. moment, right? So you can switch, ideally, you can determine what 
frame mm -hmm. you need to be in based on the environment or the scenario that you're in. Right. You, so you can kind of bounce back and forth between different frames depending on the scenario that you're in. Once you're aware of them. Gotcha. Right? Now, switch to the external here. Mm -hmm. This helps us understand other people. When I get a story and I hear it from certain family members, the exact same thing that I already knew, they're coming at it from a really different angle, right? right. Once you become aware of the frame someone is using, you can choose to step into or out of that frame with them. In fact, empathy is stepping into someone's frame, Gotcha. right? Yeah, empathy yeah. is saying, okay, I have this frame. I can pick this frame up. I have some experience that allows me to be in this frame with you. That's what empathy is. So it's really useful concept. It's a good thing to keep in mind. We all have multiple frames for things. And the more experience you have in life, the more frames you're able to see through. And I'm assuming that as your empathy or self-awareness evolves, the easier it is to kind of adapt your frames or better understand maybe the frames that other people mm -hmm. are in. Absolutely. Gotcha. Absolutely. The goal is to be able to see through as many frames as possible to get a more accurate picture. And even when you think that you are looking at a frame that doesn't have the tinted plastic, everything is clear, everything is laid down. Reality is where facts and framing meet, right? And so our realities actually shift based on our frames. Okay. Yeah. That's useful. And again, it goes a little bit to what we talked about in a previous episode with in-groups and out-groups. I'm mm -hmm. assuming that, you know, framing and understanding other people's frames is conducive to being able to have more collaborative conversations or at least being able to understand where a person is coming from with their framing so that you can be a little bit more in tune with what mm -hmm. they're discussing or how they may be approaching a subject matter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's all what we're building here is the ability to more effectively communicate. Sure. Right. So in groups and out groups and framing work very hand in hand in our world and communication. Um, and with that, my time's up. Awesome. Very good stuff. And again, if you guys are interested in providing your two cents on framing, why don't you tweet us at Katie and me pod? And we'd love to get your thoughts on that. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsor, The Collab Group, for sponsoring this episode. The Collab Group is a niche consulting company focused on providing business growth, messaging, communication, and improvement consulting services for startup and small business organizations. Their services include business development and marketing, food and agricultural messaging and strategic communication, and social media and email campaign development and management. Visit them at thecollabgroup.net, and they'd be more than happy to talk to you further. Katie, I'm going to talk a little bit about the concept of flow. Flow is a concept that I learned quite a bit about uh, in my master's degree program at the University of Miami. Flow itself is a state of concentration or complete absorption within an activity. And it was developed by, and I'm, I've worked on the pronunciation of this, uh, a gentleman by the name of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is a Hungarian-American psychologist, and he recognized and named the psychological concept of flow. And in his definition, he kind of refers to flow as a highly focused mental state conducive to productivity. So a lot of people think of flow as being in the zone or in the groove. So you may be doing a task uh, where you just feel like, man, things are really humming right now. And I'm, I'm really feeling like I'm getting things done at a high rate and I'm feeling very productive. That is the feeling of being in flow. So it's a state of optimal intrinsic motivation. Uh, the person is fully immersed in what they're doing. And 
it has a feeling or can be characterized as having a feeling of great absorption, engagement, fulfillment, skill. And sometimes you don't even really realize that you're in it. So the cool thing about flow is that Mihai really looked at it as a psychological concept. I explored it more from the sports side of things. You'll hear athletes talking about being in the zone or basketball players will feel like the basket's 100 times bigger than normal and every shot they take, they just feel like it's going to go in or hockey players feel like every shift on the ice, it's effortless in terms of like their ability to skate and make and receive passes. So it's a really interesting construct and was really explained well in Chicks and Mihai's book, his seminal work called Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience. I could sit on here and give you all of the academic jargon, but I won't do that because <laughs> uh, I know that can get a little bit dry. But hopefully everyone has at least experienced this, maybe not understood how to explain it, but has had some type of feeling at some point in their life where they were either feeling in the groove at work or on the tennis court or wherever it may be. They just felt like everything was, was very effortless and they were having the best result of whatever the task was that they were doing. And they were really intrinsically motivated by what was going on. This is like that hyper-focused state where you lose track of time. Yes, exactly. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. And so you could be, I mean, it could be bartending, for example, or, you know, I, I've, um, I had a, I, or writing is a yeah. great example, or a little bit more of a drier example, like inputting data. For my master's thesis, I had to input data, and I usually hated it because it was <laughs> laborious and I was a procrastinator and I was usually under a deadline because I'd waited to do it. But when all of the, when the environment was right and I found myself getting into that state, you're just banging out information. You have no idea how much time has gone by. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I got that done, you know, really quickly. So as it relates to sports psychology, Athletes want to figure out, well, how can I get into that state again? It wasn't initially identified as a concept, concept specific to sports, but it really lends itself to sport. Jimmy Johnson, he was the former coach of the Dallas Cowboys. He was also a football coach at Miami or the University of Miami in Florida. And he became familiar with Mihai Chicks and Mihai's work as a coach. And he started talking about it to his players. And, and obviously, he's not the only one. Tons of coaches and athletes now try and not only understand flow, but figure out how they can replicate that. So I actually was fortunate enough, I was able to work with a tennis player uh, in grad school. He was a fairly high-ranked tennis player for Miami's team, and he wanted to figure out how he could replicate optimal performance and, and replicate this feeling of flow in his matches. And it was really cool to be able to sit down, you know, we, we worked through some questionnaires. There's, there's a couple ways that you can measure flow, and I won't get into, again, all the technical of it, but the most common one is, is the flow questionnaire or the experience sampling method. And you essentially get into the physical and physiological states of these athletes and, and how they're feeling when they have this kind of optimal performance. And so then the goal is to try and replicate that. So we set up a sport kind of psychology plan for him that enabled him to get as close to replicating his top performances through what he did prior to matches and what he would do during the week. So it wasn't just an hour before. There was a whole guideline. He was a very cerebral player. There was things that he may have a match on Saturday, but there were things that we were scheduling for him to do as early as Monday before so that he could 
get himself in that correct mental state to hopefully be able to replicate that flow experience. That was really, really cool and really interesting. And it's something that, you know, I would love to hear people, their um, experiences with flow, or maybe they didn't know what it was, was called, but, you know, hear times that they felt like they were in the groove or everything was, you know, working for them. Yeah, go ahead. I would love to know what people do to trigger this, because I got to say, since I've had kids, mm -hmm. there has been no hyper-focus. <laughs> I mean, it is like, I am everywhere, <laughs> cognizant of everything at all times, while they, on the other hand, can slip into a video game sure. and disappear. Yeah. Like, they are, they are absolutely there. They don't know you're talking to them. Mm -hmm. They don't know that there is time. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, even if that is just a construct, I expect my children to buy into it. Sure. Um, yeah, so I would love to know how people uh, trigger flow if it's creating a, a quiet, isolated environment. I suspect that would help me. I think it would, and I won't bore you with my entire master's <laughs> thesis, but uh, an area that I studied was zone of optimal functioning. Uh, Russian sports psychologist Yuri Hannon discussed- yeah, As one does, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> discussed uh, ZOF, zone of optimal functioning. And it is a construct that's related to flow and it is very individualized. So mm -hmm. old school used to be that between like an anxiety or arousal related to performance was a traditional bell curve. Mm -hmm. But what Hannon discovered as well as Csikszentmihalyi is that it's different per person and maybe different by sport as well. So there's not just one way where I could say, here's how everybody gets into flow. It is very individualized. Okay. So you kind of have to get really in tune with your physical and physiological side to identify that. And you have to be honest with yourself in terms of, was that really one of my optimal performances or not? Mm -hmm. So the ability to try and generate those optimal performances is definitely there, but it, just like anything, it takes work. It's not something where you can just flip a switch. Mm -hmm. So the book that I did reference, Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience, it is a very technical read. So I'm not going to lie, I had to read it a number of times because it is very <laughs> jargon heavy, but uh, it is really interesting. So if you are interested in learning a little bit more about it, I recommend it for sure. But again, we'd love to hear from you. So feel free to either email us or tweet at us uh, about this concept. It's really interesting. And it's something that you don't have to be an athlete for. Like Katie, you mentioned, I mean, you can use it every day as being a parent or whatever your job is or anything. It's just a matter of trying to find that experience. And mm -hmm. the, the, the really cool, you can tell I get excited about this because I'm <laughs> barely breathing over here. But the really <laughs> cool thing about it is that it then becomes the like, ultimate intrinsically motivated activity. So you're enjoying doing it and time is passing and you're being successful at what you're doing. So, mm -hmm. I mean, who wouldn't want to be able to experience that as much as possible? So it's a very cool concept. And again, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. And maybe it's something that we revisit in uh, episodes down the road. Yeah, if I could master this. Yeah, if everybody yeah. could, everyone would be so much more We'd productive be and happier. So productive, yeah. And you know, really, if I could master it without having to read a technical book three or four times, <laughs> yeah. so that's why that's why we talk. Sure, right? <laughs> yeah. All right, all right. So, should we go on to our third? Yeah, topic? Yeah, let's, let's hit our Thanks, third topic. Nurse. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Okay, our third topic today. What does your nurse wish you knew? You guys, I got to tell you, the consistency of these answers. Yeah, really let you know that you're hitting the nail on the head. The nurses out there, I'm going to start by saying thank you. <laughs> this, yeah. this stuff you put up with is really uh, disheartening. <laughs> but let's see. So I'm going to just read some of these. and Yeah, and I'll chime in as well. Okay, I appreciate that. 
We heard that it's a, it's a really rewarding, but it's also a really heartbreaking job. Nurses see people that can't afford their medicine because it costs too much or they can't get a procedure and it's been denied and they're fighting and appealing the system. And, you know, you don't get into this job, you know, because of the money. You get into this job because of the heart and what you're doing. So they're seeing up close and personal the stories we're seeing in the news. And some of us are experiencing firsthand and those nurses are going through that with us. So what I'm hearing there is there's a huge emotional drain. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. The feedback we got on this, we posted a question to our Twitter feed and uh, on Facebook, and we got, you know, some really heartfelt responses. Another one that we received was from Kristen, who said, most people aren't nice to us. We're treated like servants and waitresses and housekeepers. And this is my input, no disrespect to any of those. But we're also treated like we don't know anything and we are simply puppets of the doctors, when in fact, a lot of the interventions that doctors implement are based on our assessment skills and suggestions. And Kristen went on to say things along the lines of that it's the time demand is really unreasonable. The fact that they have so many patients that they have to see really puts a, a, a crunch on their ability to, to make these assessments and suggestions, et cetera. So not only are they having to make really high level assessments and suggestions to doctors, but they're having to do so in a very short amount of time because of the volume of people that they're having to see. So that to me was was really eye-opening and, and kind of um, disheartening for the fact that they're under so much pressure and so much time constraint. Yeah, now this I've seen firsthand that night shift myth, mm -hmm. Sarah said, all the patients are sleeping yeah. and that's wrong. She said they're pooping their beds and they're trying their hardest to fall. <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah. can tell you, both as a patient who's had to stay overnight in the hospital, like no one's ever asleep. Right. The whole place is awake all the time. And the person in the room with you probably has the TV on and you're getting checked. Like people are constantly checking vitals and the nurses are still really, really busy. And then I actually worked in like ER admissions when mm -hmm. I was young, right before uh -huh. college. And I mean, that whole building was hopping mm -hmm. at night. Some of the hallway lights would be dimmed or some of the room lights would be dimmed, but the work never stopped. So there's a 12-hour night shift is absolutely yeah, as horrible as exactly. a 12-hour day shift. And if you've ever had to spend the night in the hospital with someone that had a surgery. So I, I've been in the hospital a couple times for my wife, um, both the birth of our daughter, but then also for some other surgeries. You're absolutely right, Katie. There is buzzers going off. There's blood pressure machines. There's compression machines on people's legs and, and all these things that are just the, the, the normal. So that's, you know, that's crazy. And that's just the normal things, let alone if there's, you know, an emergency or something's triggered and someone needs, you know, immediate attention. Um, yeah, it is by far a uh, peaceful, hey, we'll just go and, and chill and sit around and, and chit-chat at the you know, reception desk. That's, that's not it at all. So um, and then we got Jennifer. <laughs> Jennifer talked a lot, and it was awesome. But <laughs> I don't think reaction. we have enough time to, to yeah. read the entire diatribe. But she provided thing. some really amazing things. Yeah, she did. The budget dictates a lot. Yeah. That was a big takeaway for mm -hmm. me, that the budget was really an issue and put horrible constraints on things. And if you want me to rant about health care, this would be the point where that started. <laughs> Insert <laughs> rant here. Yeah, exactly. She said, in summary, we want to provide more personal care for our patients, but due to the number of patients we're required to take, we can't provide the personal care that people need. And it bothers us because it's why we became nurses, right? So there's all this tension and anxiety and you want to do the right thing. And there's outside constraints and in healthcare, that's really kind of a scary reality. Yeah. And I think the, the demands 
demands that are, are placed on uh, nurses and, and other healthcare professionals, and we specifically separated this from doctors. We'll mm-hmm. do doctors in another episode. But mm-hmm. I, I think the demands are really overwhelming. I guess a, a little lighter aside is with my business, The Pint Cycle, I actually, my favorite groups are when I get groups of nurses because I know that they are going to be on time. They are all well organized and they are ready to cut loose and have some well-deserved fun. I've had a number of all nurses groups in the last three or four years and hands down, they are always memorable because they literally have so much fun, are excited. They can commiserate without in a safe space. So there's no doctors around. You know, they're having a couple drinks. They're enjoying themselves. And I've learned a tremendous amount just by hearing them <laughs> kind of like, you know, let their guard down a little bit. You know, that's awesome. And it's, it's great to see that side. But on the flip side, the things that they are upset about and are venting about, especially after they've had a couple drinks, they really resonate with me. I'm like, wow, they you know, this really is, it's a thankless job. It really is. And the barriers that they have to overcome are pretty significant. And they all went into the field because they genuinely want to help other people. Mm -hmm. No one's like, I want to be a nurse because I like the hours and the uniform and the fat paychecks, (laughs) you know, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, to hear, um, and, and some of these barriers, it's amazing that people still want to go into the industry. So, um, Really yeah, it was. this was a really good topic. We got a lot of feedback on this and, and definitely appreciate people reaching out to us. So stop treating your nurses like they're servants. Yeah. They're, they're not there to bring you things. Understand the framing <laughs> when you're interacting with nurses. Understand the, their framing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We want to hear from you guys. Meet us on Twitter. Email us. Katie at katieandmepodcast. Or katieandme.com. Right. Yeah, it's uh, Katie <laughs> at KatieandMe.com or Chris at KatieandMe.com. And then our Twitter handle is KatieandMePod. Um, but thank you guys so much uh, for, for helping us with our second episode. We look forward to talking to you here again real soon. Thanks a lot, Katie. Thanks, Chris.